Bethlehem was not on the map. Bethlehem was kind of on the map because of King David, but it was pretty much off the map. Too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me. I love that phrase. From you, one will go forth for me. To be a ruler, to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So it's that last little sentence that tells you he's not just talking about another good king. We're not just talking about a nice king that's going to rise up and he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And we all say, isn't that sweet? Uh, This is a real Cinderella story. This guy came out from nowhere and became a king. Because at at the end of this statement, you see him say, his goings forth are from long ago. Oh, how long? Well, from the days of eternity. Oops, that's a long time. I don't know if you know this, but eternity doesn't have a beginning. So from the days of eternity is talking about a ruler who doesn't have a beginning. Nor does he have an end. And he's going to come out from you, Bethlehem. Bethlehem that's been discounted. Bethlehem that's been despised. Bethlehem that's too little. How many times does God use the things and the people that are too little, too weak, too unnoble, unwise, to all these other adjectives. You're too little, Bethlehem, but you're not too little for God. You're too little for people, but you're not too little for God. This is something important because if this was just a one-off, if this was just a kind of an anomaly in the Scripture, God normally uses the big things, but every now and then He uses the small things, we might be able to gloss over it. But in fact, if you've ever read throughout the Old and New Testament, God seems to prefer Using the small ones. There is an inordinate amount of great redeemers and deliverers that came out of, came out of God's people that, came, that were raised up for such a time as this. That came from women that couldn't have babies. Or from families in places where they were killing the babies. When you think about it, Samson, his mom couldn't have kids. Isaac, his mom couldn't have kids. John the Baptist, his mom couldn't have kids. Mary, she, was way, she wasn't married, wasn't, she was too young, she was a virgin, couldn't have kids. She, she could have kids later, but at the time, when you're, well, we're not going to do the math here. But you can't have kids like she had kids, like she had, that, like she had Jesus. Moses was born when they were trying to kill all the sons, all the boys that were, were being born. Moses was born and saved and rescued. Jesus was born when they're trying to kill all the little boys too. So God raises up people when there shouldn't be a baby born, there's a baby born. When there shouldn't be a place chosen, he chooses that place. When, when there shouldn't be something happen, that's when God says, I'm going to do this. We read stories about Gideon. Gideon, the man, the, the, the wimp, the, the legend, who's hiding when God finds him. And what God says to Gideon when he finds him, Isn't you coward? Why are you here? He calls him a mighty warrior, a valiant man. He calls him brave. And he causes Gideon to raise up an army. And Gideon raises up an army, which is by all standards an underdog. Nobody's betting on their odds to win. But the odds are still too close for God. So he has to cut some people. You have too many people. Your army's too big. Man says your army's too small. God says your army's too big. Cut some people. Is anybody afraid? Yeah, we are. Get out. And Gideon goes, thanks, God. 
Thanks, God. Really came through in the clutch for me, God. Well, Gideon, there's still too many people in the army. You notice those guys that are drinking water weird? Yeah. Kick them out too. What? Yeah, they drank water weird. Kick them out. Now we have 300. That's small. I can do that. I can use that. Man says, I need more. God says, too much. I want to use less. I want to show you how powerful I am. Now, why this matters? Why does this matter? You see a word throughout the Bible, which is the word despised. Now, when we think the word despised, we think of hating somebody, right? I despise you and everything you stand for. Despise is a hateful word. But the Bible word of despise is not a hateful word. It just means a word, it just means that you don't give it, it doesn't count for anything. You don't count it. It's not important enough to count, right? There's a famous prophecy in the Old Testament. He says, for who has despised the days of small beginnings? When things were small, he says, who despised? You despised. You didn't count it as anything. It didn't matter. We read later in the New Testament. We'll probably read this later. But where he goes, you know, God particularly uses the despised. The people that everybody else threw out. The things that everybody else threw out. Now, why does this matter to you? Because if you despise what the world despises, you won't count the things God counts. Why does that matter? Because your whole life is made of calculations. You're always making a calculation. You're making it even right now. You made a calculation that said, I'm going to come to church. But you had to weigh things out, didn't you? Well, if I go to church, I have to wear a mask. If I go to church, I have to register. If I go to church, I've got to get up in the morning. If I go to church, I can't sit in the comfort of my home and watch the online service. If I go to church, there might be some people that I don't want to see. You have to weigh out things. You, have to say, you had to say, it's worth more for me to be there than all these other things. You're always making a calculation. Is this job the job I should take? Well, this job has more money. This job gives me more time with my family. Which one do I pick? You, you decide which weighs more. All your life, every day, you're deciding something weighs more than this. Now, if we count little, what man counts as little, we'll make the wrong decisions. You have to count what God counts. So God counts Bethlehem as important, but no one else does. So when the wise men show up in Jerusalem, they say, where is the king going to be born? These guys quote this scripture. The religious leaders know this verse, but they haven't caught the verse. You know, there's a difference between knowing a verse and catching it. Knowing it and receiving it. They know the verse, and they say he's going to be born in Bethlehem, but nobody goes except for the wise men. They had to weigh it out. Do we count Bethlehem as important enough? Do we count it as significant? Do we count this prophecy as significant? So when God says, you're too little, then he says, but I'm going to use you. You have to understand, God doesn't say they're too little. God says, you're you're just right. You're somebody I'm going to use. Don't discount the days of small beginnings. That's what Christmas is all about this. This time of year, we are focusing on the advent of Christ. That's all about this. You go and you see nativity scenes. What do you see? A bunch of people gathered around a baby. A baby that's got no wise sayings for them. That's not a look, look who's talking baby. Hey there, toots. Why don't you pass me that bottle? No, he's not. 
This is a baby that's lying there making goo goo gaga noises, crying at times, dirtying his pamper or what, cloth, whatever, he swaddled in cloth. In, I mean, not, not majestic, not wise, not miraculous by any person's sight. And yet, this is the Son of God. This is divinity in flesh. And so what do you see when you see the nativity scenes? You see people worshiping a baby. I said this last week. I've said it before. It takes faith to worship a baby. You know it does. How would you feel worshiping a baby? A baby that hasn't done a thing for you. A baby that hasn't done one miracle. A baby that doesn't look mighty. noble. A baby that depends on you. God, the infinite, all-powerful, omnipotent God. Who doesn't need anything from anybody. Put himself in a form where someone had to feed him. Where someone had to change his diapers. God let himself need people. Isn't that amazing? So who's going to worship that baby? You're not worshiping who he is. Or, or I'm sorry, you are. You're not worshiping what he's done. You're worshiping him for who he is, who God says this baby is. Faith celebrates the small before it becomes big. Faith honors the seed before you see the harvest. Faith understands that this is real. The Bible says about Abraham, he says, Abraham had to believe God, the same God who calls things that are not as though they were. God doesn't say it's going to happen. God says it's already as good as happened. God didn't say, Abraham, someday when you have a baby, I'm going to call you father. God said to Abraham before he ever had any kids, I have made you father of many nations. And God made Abraham change his name to, fa to father of many. Before he had any kids, believe the word of God. So Bethlehem is, is the principle you see throughout the word of God, which is God using small things to shame the big things. God using the small things to draw those who are believing and those who are looking, to draw them out while everyone else walks on by. Have you ever said this? If the world could see a miracle, they would all believe. Oh, if they could just see a miracle. You know, some people, they see a miracle, they do believe. Maybe that was you. Thank God we serve a God that still does miracles. And there's signs and wonders to unbelievers. And I believe it's part of his mission. I believe it's good evangelism. We've seen people saw a miracle and it stirred something in them. But you know, that doesn't mean everybody will believe. Because Jesus did Pretty astounding miracles for three years. And a lot of people did not believe. In fact, the greatest miracle he did besides dying on the cross and rising from the dead, the greatest miracle before that was raising the Lazarus from the dead. It was known as one of the signs of the Messiah if he could raise a man from the dead who'd been dead more than three days. That was one of the most indisputable signs because for some reason the Jews had an idea that a soul might hang around for three days. And so if you raised a guy from the dead who'd been dead for two days, well, that's impressive, but come on. Could have just been sleeping really heavy. Can you imagine somebody been raised from the dead after two days of being dead, and they're like, yeah. <laughs> but two days, really? Is that really dead for two days? Is that really dead? Well, he's starting to smell bad. Yeah, but. But Lazarus was dead. Four days Jesus came. 
His sister said, we can't open the tomb. He smells bad. Jesus raised him from the dead, right? An indisputable sign. But what was the response of the religious leaders in Jerusalem? When he raised Lazarus from the dead, they said, now we really have to kill him. Now we really have to kill him. And now we got to kill Lazarus too. Because he can't be raised from the dead twice. we got to double kill this guy somehow. He bounced back. Somebody get a stake and drive it through his heart. I don't know what's with this Lazarus guy, but, he, but we got to kill him for good this time. Make sure he's good and dead. Jesus did these miracles, and yet people overlooked him. At the end of his ministry, he comes to Jerusalem and says, Jerusalem, how I wish you would have known the things which make for peace, but they've been hidden from your eyes. He said, because you've missed the day of your visitation. They missed Jesus when he was right there. Why? Because they were looking for something else. Humans, humans without God are adulterous. We're always looking for something else. That's what Jesus said to the Pharisees. He says, your, adult, your hearts are adulterous. Let me tell you that story. Mark chapter 8. We'll turn there and we'll read this together. But let's set it up. Mark chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 men and their families. What does he feed them with? Does anybody remember? The what now? Loaves and fishes. Everybody's saying it real quietly because you want to make sure. Once again, I don't know how many times I have to tell you. I'm not one of those I'm going to trick you preachers. I don't get, uh, I, don't get I don't find that funny. <laughs> but I know a lot of Christians have been tricked by preachers who go, well, actually. And you're like, well, I'm never speaking up in church again. But in Mark chapter 6, Jesus had 5,000 men. The Bible says 5,000 men, so we presume that that means there were 5,000 men who also had their families. That would be a lot of people. And they were in a desolate place. So there were no stores nearby. There were no villages close that could feed all these people. When the disciples said, these people need food, Jesus said, you feed them. And the disciples said, with what? Where are we going to get all the food? And how did, how did God meet that need? A little boy brought a little basket with some fish and bread in it. Do you guys remember this? And he offered it to Jesus. Why did a little boy do that? Because no adult would have done that. Do you know why? Why wouldn't we have done that? Why wouldn't adults do that? Little boys say, I have something. God needs something. I have something. Adults reason it out and go, this is way too small for thousands. This is silly. We feel silly. Wouldn't you feel silly bringing, being like, oh, you need to feed thousands? Here's a, just a handful of bread and fish. Something in our head would be like, don't you dare bring that to Jesus. That's stupid. That's small. That's insignificant. That's never going to be enough. And Jesus is going to take it and go, what, is this some sort of joke to you? You think this is funny? Ha, 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 ha. Why don't you just take your basket, sit down and eat it. You know what? Talk to me when you have a serious solution. All the businessmen would be getting together. What can we do? Who can we contract? Uh, someone's got to ride out to, oh, what's the nearest town? Ooh, how can we raise funds? That's what we would be doing. A, bo- a little boy says, here's what I've got. Little boy is just dumb enough to be used by God. Oh, I pray I would be dumb enough to be used by God. Where I would just be naive enough to say, this is too small. Maybe God can use it. God loves using small things. 
because he's a God of seed and harvest. So God never despises seed. Whatever that seed is in you, whatever God's placed in you, and it seems so, so, just so abundantly small, God can never use this. It's, it's insignificant. It's unimportant. How many of you ever have been in a prayer meeting and, and everybody seems to have this great revelation from God that they're praying out, and all you've got is two words and they sound real silly? I only got this, or I only got this verse, just a little verse. Everybody else seems to have this great revelation. Whatever God gave you, it matters. Let God use that. Jesus took that that, that basket of loaves and fish, and he did what? He thanked God for it. See, he was thankful when it wasn't enough. When you're thankful when it's not enough, it'll be blessed so that it's more than enough. But you got to thank him when it's not enough. Someone had a need today, and we said, well, we believe God's going to meet that need. Matter of fact, we're going to take up an offering. And you had a need, you needed $10,000, and we, we all gathered together and gave you 50. What are you going to do with that $50? You're going you're to be bitter and say, they psh, wish they hadn't even tried. 50 will never do anything. Or would you say, maybe God put a seed in my hand. What am I supposed to do with this, God? What are you going to do with this? Rather than despising the little, you honor it like Jesus did. So he fed, he, he, he gave it to the disciples, and disciples fed the 5,000 men and their families. Two chapters later, there's a group of 4,000 that needs to get fed. What does Jesus do? Same thing. And there's leftovers. I love that. We always think God would be a God of precise, never too much, never too little. But God is a God who just, either he did the math wrong, or he wanted there to be extras. Right? Do you think God just went, oops, I multiplied too much. Sorry, guys, i I got to calibrate. Or do you think that's his way? Just to show you. I'm a God of abundance here. It was too much. Well, reputation, these, these miracles became very famous. One of the Gospels tells us crowds started following him, hoping he'd do that feeding miracle again. Let me tell you, if we were the church that, that, that gave everybody pizza at church, there'd be more people at church. You know, so a steak dinner. If everybody got steak at the Word Church, we'd have some new people at the Word Church showing up going, hey. So people were following Jesus, word spread. But in Mark chapter 8, he is confronted by the Pharisees right after these miracles, directly after. Here's what they say. They confront him as soon as he crosses to the other side. And they say, it says in verse, uh, this is Mark 8 verse 11, 11. The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. What does a sign mean? A sign, this word sign in the Greek literally means an attesting miracle, a proving miracle. A miracle that backs up what we've been saying about you, what they've been saying about you. One of the other gospels tells us, here it just says they were seeking it. One of the other gospels tells us how they said how they did it. They said, this is what they said to Jesus: What sign will you show us? What are you gonna how are you gonna prove you are the Messiah? How are you going to prove you are who you say you are? What sign will you do for us? <laughs> Immediately after, he's just fed 5,000 men and their families. Then he just fed 4,000. 
Not to mention the countless blind people, deaf people, lame people, demon-possessed people, leprous people, all these people that have been healed. But yeah, but what sign are you going to do? I don't know. Is feeding 5,000 people with a basket full of food impressive to you? Yeah, but what kind of sign? I don't know. Is that, that, you know, paralyzed people walking? Yeah, but what sign? Dead people coming back. What sign, though? What are you looking for? And so he... The next verse is a verse that I think about a lot. The next sentence is a sentence I think about a lot. In, in, in verse 12, sighing deeply in his spirit. Have you ever had one of these deep sighs in the spirit? Like, <laughs> just a natural sigh is not enough. This, this, this goes down to the spirit. Do you ever think Jesus was just, just monotonous, the same uh, the same emotional level all through his life. Let me tell you, he was not. He had emotions too. He just didn't let his emotions rule him. And his emotions were always holy, right? So they weren't evil. But he sighed deeply in his spirit. He's like, oh, guys. And he says, why does this generation seek for a sign? Now, if you've read the Gospels, he did lots of signs. Lots of signs and wonders. In fact, at the end of his ministry, he said, believe me, believe, my, believe me what I've said to you, but if you don't believe what I said, at least believe the signs I've done. At least believe because of the miracles, which tells us Jesus was okay with people starting from the point where they believed just because of the miracles. He said, you'll be blessed if you believe when you don't see, but at least if you believe in the miracles, at least you believe. But he goes, why, why is this generation always looking for a sign? He's not asking, he's not saying it's wrong for him to do signs or it's wrong for people to say that is a sign. He says, it's, the, the problem here is, is that you've seen all these things and you're still looking for a sign. Nothing will ever prove it to you. He says, truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Anybody know their Bible enough to, to answer this question? Did Jesus do more miracles after this? Did he do more signs and wonders? Yeah. So what does it mean no sign will be given to you? It doesn't mean he stopped doing sign-worthy things. It just means if that wasn't enough, nothing will. Jesus told a parable about a man who died. A rich man and a poor man died at the same time, around the same time. And the rich man ended up in hell. And across the chasm, he could see Abraham, because this was before Jesus had died to bring all those righteous souls to heaven. So God had kept a place called the bosom of Abraham, which was paradise. It wasn't heaven, but it wasn't as bad as that hell. Here they are in paradise, and the rich man can see across the gap, and he can see Abraham, and he can see that poor man, Lazarus. Not, not Jesus' friend Lazarus, the different Lazarus. He can see the poor man, the beggar who begged for scraps around his house. And that man somehow made it to paradise. So the first thing he asks is, he says, can you just dip a little bit of water and put it on my tongue? Abraham says, I can't reach you, you can't reach me. He says, well, can you do me this thing? Can you send my, my, my poor little buddy, you know, our mascot, <laughs> that we treated so badly, but now he's in paradise with you, Abraham. Can you send him back? It's funny, he's still, sending the, he's still treating this guy like his little errand boy. But he goes, can you send him back from the dead to warn my brothers about this place? 
And Abraham says, if they didn't believe the law and the prophets, they won't even believe a man come back from the dead. We think, well, I didn't believe God when he did the small thing, but oh, when he does the big thing, I'll believe then. But you don't understand the nature of a hard heart. A hard heart will miss the small things and the big things. A hardened heart is cancerous. It will spread. And in fact, one of the other Gospels, Jesus, it adds something that Jesus said. Jesus also said to them, he called them adulterous. He said, you, you are an adulterous generation. Your hearts are adulterous. What does that mean, to be adulterous? It means your heart belongs to someone, but you're giving your heart to someone else. They were the bride, prepared for the bridegroom. Jesus told them this. The bridegroom had come. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Right? So when he did come, he was the Messiah they'd been waiting for, but he was not the Messiah they were looking for. He was the Messiah they were waiting for, but he was not the Messiah they were looking for. How many times does God's promise come just, what, just, just the exact thing you've been waiting for, but it doesn't come like you're looking for, and so you reject it. Jesus said their hearts were adulterous. Why? Well, I don't know if you noticed, but Jesus did not do Messiah like they thought Messiah should, should, should act. He came and he spent his time in the backwoods of Galilee most of the time. In, in, the, in the hillbilly areas. His own, one of his own, like, star disciples, when he first was called, said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like, can Nazareth produce anything good? They did not have a high opinion of this. So, what do the Jews want from the Messiah? They want him to be a great ruler, a great man, to rise up and overthrow the oppressors, to, to, to do what they had expected, to do what they desired. And when Jesus didn't meet their standards, they rejected Jesus. How many times do we reject what God is doing because it does not meet our standards? It doesn't meet, it's not big enough, it's not strong enough, it's not fancy enough, it's not beautiful enough. Remember, this Bethlehem was not the first time that Bethlehem produced a great person. The first famous person, the only other famous person besides Jesus, to come out of Bethlehem was King David. Do you remember how King David was called? Anybody remember the story? Samuel was told by God, you need to anoint a new king because Saul has messed things up royally, pun intended. Samuel says, okay, where do I go? God says, I want you to go to Bethlehem. Samuel says, where now? Bethlehem. Okay, I need to find that on my map. And he says, Samuel says, well, I can't just go to Bethlehem. Saul's going to wonder what I'm doing. I could get in trouble. God says, okay, go and offer a sacrifice there. Samuel shows up in Bethlehem, and the elders of the town come out and go, what did we do wrong? Are we in trouble? You shouldn't be at our town. <laughs> it would be like, you know, like sometimes you're in these little small towns, and somebody important shows up, and you go, what's wrong? Why are you here? They said, why are you here, Samuel? Are we in trouble? Are we going to die today? Samuel says, no, let's just go do a sacrifice. Hey, Jesse, bring your boys. So David's father, Jesse, brings his sons. Samuel's on an undercover mission. He's going to find the next king of Israel. And he's watching Jesse's sons, and he sees the oldest son, and he goes, that's the guy. That's the guy. If I've ever seen a king, that's the one. 
He looks like a king. He walks like a king. He's got confidence like a king. He's the one. And God says something to him. God says, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. God rejects him. Goes down the list. All of these sons that are great, mighty, noble. Nope. Samuel finally says to Jesse, don't you have another kid? And Jesse says, well, we got the young one, but he's out keeping the sheep. Samuel says, bring him to me. And when he sees him, he knows this is the future king. But this is a kid that was discounted by his own family. Wasn't important enough to bring to the occasion. Surely God wouldn't choose him. I mean, come on, guys. I know Saul turned out bad, but you remember how Saul was chosen? The first king of Israel. You know, the first one's pretty important, right? You, you, you want to get the first one right. The United States, the first president was George Washington. It's pretty tough to beat George Washington. That's a good first president. First king of Israel was Saul. Do you know Saul was of the smallest family and the smallest clan and the smallest tribe? And when it came time for Inauguration Day, when it came time for him to be crowned king of Israel, they couldn't find him. Where's Saul? They finally found him hiding amongst the luggage. Hiding amongst the luggage. There's your king. Is this your king? Hiding amongst the luggage. God picked him. See, if we despise what the world despises, we won't honor what God honors. David became a great king, but Samuel had to find him before he was great. Jonathan pledged himself to him before he was great. People of faith see what God is doing before it becomes something in the world's eyes. That's so important. So they reject Jesus because he's not, you're not doing what we need. And so Jesus says, you'll never see a sign. I want to tell you, if you miss the small things, you'll also miss the big things. If you miss the small things, you'll miss the big things. You say, no, no, I'll catch it when it's big. You just think that God will be so obvious, everybody will notice. And yet, God was pretty obvious those three years Jesus walked. And yet, most people missed him. How much more obvious do you think he needed to be? But you know what Jesus didn't do? He didn't go to Rome. He didn't go to Jerusalem. He went to Jerusalem, but he didn't stay there. The longest period he spent in Jerusalem was when he was there to die. So we have to judge things differently. I want to read you something out of 1 Corinthians. And I find myself in this chapter, and I hope you find yourself here too. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is foolishness. It's foolish. But to us that are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Stop for a minute. He's saying God's message, God's power, God's, God's greatest thing looks silly to the world, looks foolish to the world. It doesn't make sense. It's the opposite of wisdom to the world. 
You may say, well, how does that happen? Isn't God, I mean, God is so wise. Won't everything he do just drip of wisdom and won't everybody recognize that he's wise? Well, the truth is he's so wise that he looks foolish to us. Does that make sense? Do you ever wonder what your pets think about you? What your hamster thinks? You're walking in, walking out. You sit at, you sit at the counter and you say, I got to do some work today. And then you open this box and you start touching on the keys. And your pets are going, what? Why are you, th- why are you sitting down for four hours just looking at that thing? They don't know why you leave. They don't know why you come back. You make no sense to them. You're foolish to them. And yet it's because your intellect is so far beyond theirs. Now multiply that by infinity. God's wisdom is so far above ours that the only way it won't look silly is if you let him reveal it to you. What is revelation? What is a mystery in the Bible? A mystery is something that is too big, too hidden, too complex for you to understand, but God has to reveal it to you. Do you ever wonder why the last book of the Bible was called Revelation? In Greek, the last book of the Bible is Apocalypsis. So our word apocalypse, it doesn't, isn't a word that means bad things are going to happen. The word apocalypse means something is uncovered, something is revealed. Well, that's cool. Why? Because you won't be able to understand this unless God uncovers it for you. That's what revelation is. And so Jesus says things like this. When his disciples caught revelation or, or when, they, when they saw the power of God working in them, Jesus rejoiced and said, I thank you, Father, that you've revealed these things to babies. Now, how would you like it if you were part of Jesus' crack team? And he, and he says, you know what? Even this baby dummy got it. Thank you, Father. You used a, a, just, a, a, just a silly little baby to get that great revelation. You wouldn't... You wouldn't feel very flattered, would you? (laughs) 1 Corinthians 1, he says he was well pleased to the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. The most powerful force in the universe is the message of the gospel. The most powerful thing is the gospel. The most powerful thing that was ever done was the work of the cross. And it's silly to the world, but it is powerful to us. For indeed, Jews ask for signs. And Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. How could our Messiah let himself be killed by the Gentiles? To the Gentiles, it's foolishness. How could a criminal ever save the world? How could he conquer by dying? But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised. Remember that word despised? The people that don't count? The people everyone else has discounted? The things everyone else has discounted? God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God But by his doing, you are. Hear that? By his doing, you are. By his doing, you are. By his doing, I am. You have to define yourself by his doing. You can't define yourself by your doing. You have to define yourself by his doing. By his doing, you are in Christ. 
who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. What city could boast that they produced a Savior? Bethlehem couldn't. What innkeeper could boast that the Savior of the world was born in his inn? No innkeeper could boast that. What furniture maker could boast that the king of the Jews was laid in his bed? None. For Jesus was turned away by the innkeepers, was born in a small no-account town, and placed in an animal's feeding trough. Who could boast except for God? How would you like it if God wrote the letter to us and said, there's not many smart people here. This church doesn't have a lot of smart people in it. How would you feel about that? What about when he said, there's not many mighty. You're a lot of wimps here. Not many noble. You're a bunch of hillbillies here. Would you guys feel very flattered by that? Maybe, because at the end he says, but God chose you. Like I said before, you'll make your life's decisions based on how you weigh things. The world has already discounted the things of God. The small things, the seeds. Does it take faith to worship a baby? Yes. Does it take faith to show up to Bethlehem and expect something great? Yes. Oh, little town of Lloydminster. Can anything good come out of Marshall? Can anything good come out of Macklin? Can anything good come out of Kid Scotty? Can anything good come out of a room where 30 people are allowed to gather this morning? Yeah. You have to weigh things like God weighs things. And God puts a lot of value in a seed. The world needs it to be big right away. Why? Because dead things don't grow. When you build it, that's as big as it will be. The world needs it to already be big because it's, it's never going to grow because the world can't build living things, only dead things. So they need it big so they can notice it. But God works with living things. So he always starts with a seed. And he says, my kingdom is like a mustard seed. Smallest seed there is, well, in their, in their culture, one of the smallest seeds they ever worked with. And he said, but it'll take over the whole garden. No natural mustard plant will ever take over the whole garden, but God's kingdom is different. Starts out small, but it'll come big. God's kingdom, this is the way God works with small things. So stop throwing away the small things and the small people and the small places and start making decisions based on what God says matters. Start trusting in the promise. Start celebrating the promise. Listen, they could have said, we'll, we'll come see the baby as a tourist, but we'll worship when he becomes something. Faith celebrates when it's still a seed. Faith rejoices when it's small. Abraham saw Jesus' day thousands of years before Jesus came, and he rejoiced. Did he see it in his lifetime? No. I mean, did he experience it? No, but he rejoiced. Simeon held the baby up and said, my eyes have seen salvation. I've seen it. People of faith see it and rejoice in what it is. More, not just what it is, but what it will be, what God says it will be, before it looks impressive. And this will cause you to spend time with people that nobody thinks matter. This will cause you to spend time in places that seem like a waste of your time. You say, God, what matters to you? This will cause me to be here right now because you said this matters. This will cause me to pray about this because you said it matters. This will cause me not to give up because you said I matter. 
You said you chose, you purposely went out of your way to chose, choose people that nobody else would choose. Where did we get it on our heads? If God's going to do a great work, he would have to do it, have to start in Ottawa. He's going to have to get hold of the prime minister. May God get hold of the prime minister. But there's nothing, nothing in the Bible that says he has to start with the prime minister. Or the president. Or the queen of England. Elections don't determine God's kingdom. God's kingdom determines elections. We're, we got this whole thing backed off. We think if something went the way we didn't want it to go, that God's plan is ruined. Come on, guys. You read the Bible. Do you think, the, you think, you think government was going the early church's way? And yet they were mighty and they were powerful. Stop looking to Toronto and Montreal and Vancouver for all the great things in Canada. Why don't you look and notice that the greatest revival that struck Canada in the 20th century happened in North Battleford. North Battleford. You know what you do when you get to North Battleford? You keep driving. Saskatoon's still coming. But God did a mighty move in North Battleford. So let's not, let's not keep driving when God says, here's the spot. Let's honor what God's doing. Let's, let's celebrate the seed and watch what God can do. Amen. Don't discount yourself. Don't discount your gift. Don't discount what you have to offer. Don't discount other people in your life. Don't judge the way the world judges. And if you say, I don't, I don't think I've got much to give, but you've got a basket that is so far short of what's needed, bring the basket. And let God worry about what he does with it. You just bring what he gives you. Right? If all I got to offer is a smile and the fruit of the Spirit, that's a lot. Bring what you have and don't despise it. Don't discount it. Let's stand up together. We're going to praise the Lord. Hallelujah. For God is so good. God is so good. Thank you, Jesus. We serve a mighty God. And he loves to show off. He's God who loves to show off. He says, I will go out of my way to find the people nobody's looking for. I will go out of my way to find the places everyone's overlooking. Thank you, Jesus. So what I want to pray today is that you would, we would see what God sees. and We would value what he values. We would weigh what he weighs. Thank you, Lord. You know, the Apostle Paul said this. Paul said, uh, I've been beaten, I've been shipwrecked, I've been stoned, been imprisoned. He said, but these temporary light afflictions are producing for us an eternal weight of glory. He considered his afflictions light because eternity was heavy and glory was heavy. That's how Paul made his decisions based on what weighed more. And he said, this doesn't weigh a lot. To many of us, those things would weigh a whole lot. But to him, it weighed very little compared to the eternal. He's also the one who said, the things that are unseen, or sorry, the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And the unseen things the world gives no credit to. But God gives it all to. So I want us to begin to see it like God sees it. Lord, open our eyes. Open the eyes of our heart to see what you see, to value what you value, to weigh what you weigh. 
Lord, forgive us for despising the small things or the small beginnings. Just can't wait till this thing gets big instead of celebrating what you're doing right now. Instead of celebrating the promise, the seed, the prophecy. Lord, I pray that we be a people that are expectant, faithful, full of hope, looking, not discouraged by the smallness of what we see, but encouraged by the greatness of our God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. God is using the things that you are about to throw away. The things that you think are worthy of being thrown out in the trash, God is using.